I'm just going to go back to the beginning of Passion Week. I, I, I want to go back just for a moment and kind of give like a, just, a, just a, a synopsis of what happened. Well, you know, we saw Palm Sunday. That was last Sunday, right? Palm Sunday, Jesus finally declaring openly to all the world, to all of Israel, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah sent by God, the sinless Son of God. Right, that is what he declared. And th- th- there's an interesting part uh, in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. As Jesus is coming down, he's on the donkey. And as he's coming down and he's looking upon Jerusalem, he's not excited. He's not rejoicing. He's not singing with all the, the crowds that are around him. Do you guys remember what he was doing? He was crying. He was crying. Why? Because he knew That as glorious of a celebration as this was, as he was entering into uh, Jerusalem as the promised Messiah on the date that Daniel had prophesied, he knew that they were going to reject him. He knew that they would turn away from him and that they would later crucify him. And so he weeps and he said, if only you had known the day of your visitation. If only. He says, so many many times speaking as the voice of God, he said, I wanted to gather you under my wings as 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 a mother hen gathers her chicks. He says, but you would not. And so Jesus was torn. And then we we move forward to to the Passover, to Wednesday. Right? So we had Palm Sunday, then you had the four days of observation, and you come to the Passover. And in the Passover, you know, he's like, you know, he, he was so excited. He's like, you know, I, I've wanted so long to share this meal with you, with his disciples. And yet he didn't come. Now, he, he's, he's presented himself as Messiah. He, he's shown himself to be the Son of God. He, he's openly declared it. And yet, what does he do? Does he say, does he command his disciples, come, wash my feet, bow before me? Is that what he does? No, but in a very humble and beautiful ceremony. In the time, remember when we did, those of you who were here for the Passover service, remember how we washed the hands at the beginning of it? At that time, it says that he took off his robe and he put a towel around his waist and the Son of God washed the feet of those fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. Right now, if you guys have ever been like on foreign missions or anything like that, you know, the ground gets really dirty. Right? We don't ha- not every place has sidewalks and, and asphalt like we do everywhere we go. And so they'd walk around in sandals on the dirt, and their feet would become filthy, just completely covered in dirt. And Jesus, the Son of God, on the, the eve before his glorification, did not seek to be served, but instead he humbled himself to the place of the lowest servant, and he washed the feet of his disciples. Not only that, but in that same setting, he identified his betrayer. Now you think about that. You know, he said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And then, yet he knew that one of them, Judas Iscariot, he knew that Judas was going to betray him. And yet, he didn't say, hey, Judas, you know what? I know what you're going to do. Get out of here before they even started the Passover. But the thing that absolutely just dumbfounds me is that Jesus washed Judas' feet. Think about that for a moment. The night before he was going to be crucified because of Judas, he washed his feet in an act of humility. And then it was after that that he identified his betrayer and sent him on his way. After the Passover, so this is uh, Wednesday evening, uh, he, he goes out. and We don't know what time. You know, a lot of times Jewish Passovers go all the way till midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Ours didn't go that long. Praise the Lord. But nevertheless, he would go out into the night in the middle of the night and he goes to a place called Gethsemane. 
right, to the olive press. And if you know anything about an olive press, it's where the olives are crushed. And that is exactly what happened with Jesus. He, he had his disciples stay, and then he went and he prayed. And he was praying to the Lord. He said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, what cup is he speaking of? The cross. He said, if it is possible, if they can be saved, if salvation is found in any other name, Father, if there's any other way, then let this cup, let the cross pass from me. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And it, it literally, it, it shows in uh, Luke's account of the, of the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that as he was praying, that he began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Now, what that is, you can actually become, if those of you who have followed medical science or anything like that, but you can become so stressed out that the blood vessels in your skin can literally dilate and you can begin to sweat blood. You have to be really really, really in agony and in great distress for that to happen. But it is a medical thing that does happen. And so we see that Jesus, when he was facing the cross, when he was facing the horrors of crucifixion, that he was sweating great drops of blood because he knew it was happening. And you know what? I I don't believe for a second that it was just the physical torment that he was really so nervous about. But he knew that when he became sin for us, He knew that his Holy Father could not look upon him. And for the first time in eternity, and the only time in eternity, God the Son and God the Father were separate. He was isolated. The Father turned his face away, like as that song that we sang. right? He turned his face away. And I believe that more than anything else. For Jesus, who all of his existence had known perfect unity with the Father, he was going to be separated from his Father for us. And we don't even understand what that means because we've lived a whole life you know, separated from God, at least to an extent. But for Jesus, I believe this was the greatest part of the cross. You know, those of you who've watched The Passion of the Christ, and even when you look in The Passion of the Christ, that's not, that, it goes further. It's worse than that. If you read Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, and you realize that he was not even able to be, he didn't even resemble a human figure when they were finished with him. And when you look at the passion of the Christ, he's messy, but that's not even as far as it goes. That, that's the G version of what happened. But even still, the being separated from the Father was a greater horror to him than even that, I believe. That's just conjecture, but I believe it to be so. He declares openly that he is the Christ. He is beaten in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of Annas and Caiaphas. Thursday morning, he's taken before Pilate. Pilate finds a way out, sends him to Herod. Herod says, yeah, yeah, whatever. It sends him back to Pilate. And then there, Pilate is forced. He's cornered by the, the Jews to crucify him. And so he, he, in a mock ceremony, has somebody pour water over his hands. He says, I wash my, this man's blood is not on my hands. Yes, it is. And yet he washes his hands. And the, the, the crowd is shouting out, let his blood be on us and upon our children. Can you imagine that? And so Pilate sends him off to be scourged and to be crucified. He walks to Calvary, bearing his cross. He stumbles under the weight of it. Simon of Cyrene is summoned by a Roman centurion to bear the cross for him, walks him to Calvary, and there he is crucified. And from the cross, he does not utter curses. He does not revile in return, even though people were coming and spitting at him, scoffing at him, and still he loves, and he prayed for them. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How can I even begin? How can I even begin the depth and the, the love that we see in this horrific 
extravagant, beautiful tragedy where man killed his creator, where man murdered God. And then we come to Matthew chapter 28. And those of you who have your Bibles with you, go ahead and flip over to Matthew 28. And, and we're going to enter into what Easter is really about, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because, see, th- there have been many people, there have been many people who have come to death, haven't they? Right? Death was like an ironclad cell. It was like Alcatraz. Nobody gets out of Alcatraz. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you know, death, you know, it's like <laughs> taunting. It's proud. It's boastful. You know, it's like 100%. One out of every one dies, and they stay here with me. Death, it, it, it is this great enemy, this vile enemy. And yet, all of a sudden, something happens. And, hey, a person is, is resurrected. What was that? Okay, it's an anomaly. A couple hundred years later, another person's resurrected. What's going on? You know, the the grave is losing its touch. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes onto the scene. He is born onto this earth, and the earth trembles. All of creation trembles at Christ. The angels literally gawked at him. When Jesus was born in in that manger, it said that the angels, the Greek word is literally to gawk at. Well, why is that? Well, I actually liked uh, David Hawkins. Uh, what he said was actually pretty profound. He said that it could it be because, you know, we see in the throne room, I think it's in Ezekiel's passage, where the, the angels are literally covering their eyes with their wings. And it's like, could it be that the presence of God is so incredible, so holy, that even the angels aren't permitted to look upon him? And when Christ was born as a man, it was the first moment that the angels actually had the opportunity to see their God. I don't know. I don't know, but it's pretty powerful. And what we have now is Jesus. He has died, and yet now the, the, the grave, it's trembling now, and it's bursting at the seams, and it cannot hold him. And not only that, it's like he, he bursts out of the grave, and death is defeated, right? It is defeated. All those who are found in Christ from this day forward will never enter its gates, but they will go directly from here into the presence of God. Amen. Right? Amen. The grave, death, it is a fallen foe. It has no power. It has no victory. It has no sting for those who are in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. And so we have here in chapter 28 of Matthew's gospel, verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the mother and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren Go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. Guys, this is the most important moment in any of our lives. You think, oh, you know, the day, the day my, my first child was born, you know what, that's a beautiful moment, but it pales in comparison to this day. You think, oh, the, the day that I met my true love, you know what, that's beautiful, but it pales in comparison to this day. Oh, the day that we got married, oh, the, the day, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's the funeral, but you know what? Those things, all of those things, they're in orbit around this one central, most important day, the day that Christ rose from the dead. See, death and resurrection is a strange concept to some. I, I remember before I was a Christian, like just the concept of it was just like, well, you know, yeah, of course there's an afterlife, but you know, I, I don't know. And I never really considered it. I never really uh, gave it much thought. But when you really think about it, without the resurrection, what is it that we believe in? Right? What is it that we believe in? This is, you know, we talked about Jesus being the foundation of the church. He is the cornerstone. He is the one. Remember, the, the, even just the very statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God at Caesarea Philippi. Remember, that is the foundation that the church is going to be, be built on. That is the declaration of the church. But where is the power? Where does it come from? How do we have the authority of heaven to be able to take this message, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, into the world? It's by the empty tomb, right? It is by this fact that we have the authority to be able to go into all the nations and declare this central truth. Now, there are many uh, gurus, there are many religious leaders that have, that have lived from day to day and, and they claim to be something special and they have many followers and people follow them. But you know what? Do they have a living faith or a dead faith? They have a dead faith. Why? Because the one whom they put their trust in died. Now, there was a lot of people who had a lot of claims about what happens after you die. And yet, could any of them, could any of them like say, hey, you know what? I died. Now, guess what, guys? It's true. Did any of them? Did Confucius come back? Did Buddha come back? Did Muhammad come back? Did any of the so-called great religious minds, did Gandhi come back? Mother Teresa? Nobody. You, know, you look at the, the people that we you venerate more than any others and you look at them and could they prove by their own authority say that what I am teaching you is true? And the answer is no. There is only one, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He and he alone was able to conquer the grave. He made the claims, I am the son of God. I, nobody takes my life from me. So it wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the crowd. It wasn't Barabbas. Nobody takes my life from me. He said, I lay my life down and I have the power to take it up again. That was his claim. And so Jesus, when he was on the cross, did the cross kill Jesus? Little trivia question for you. Did the cross kill Jesus? The answer is no. What does it say? He says that he gave up the ghost. See, he had authority to let go of his spirit when he deemed, when the fullness of the propitiation of God was met. 
when he was able to say, tetelestai, paid in full, in that moment, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it says that he gave up the ghost. Right? He gave it. Now, I know there's a lot of good studies on like what the cross does and, and how Jesus died of a broken heart and, and you know, the pericardium broke and all that kind of stuff. But you know, all of that physically, sure, can happen. But I will tell you this right now. The cross didn't kill Jesus. He laid down his life as a ransom for sin. He laid down his life because he and he alone had the authority to do so. And then he also had the authority. He had the power to take it up again. And he rose. Now, how important is the empty tomb? How important is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It is the most important doctrine in Christianity because without the risen Lord, there is no Christianity. None of it means anything. You can take it all and wipe it away. We might as well all go and eat some peeps and have some chocolate bunnies because it doesn't matter. But is it an empty faith that we have? Is is it an empty hope, an empty trust? Like, oh, well, you know what? Uh, I'm not really sure what happened. And maybe the disciples took him. Maybe maybe he swooned. He didn't really die. He swooned on the cross. And when, when the Roman soldier stuck the spear through his rib cage and pierced his heart, and the flow of blood and water came out. Well, you know, that was just a flesh wound. You know, it, it really didn't do that much to him. And so he was in the tomb. He was, you know, and, and being without food or water for three days, that really did him good. And, and he came back alive. Do you believe that? For even a second? No. Okay. There is absolute proof. If, if you took all of the proofs. Now, I don't have time this morning to go over all the proofs of why that the resurrection is a provable fact. But I'm just going to say this that if you take all of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to a court of law, even our liberal courts today, the courts would be forced to confess and judge that he did rise. There is no doubt whatsoever. The proof is all there. It's insurmountable. It is a fact. And guys, we need to know. It's like, you know, we can't be questioning the, you know, the fact of whether Jesus rose from the dead. And I, I, I know probably most of you don't, but you guys need to understand that this is what we stand upon. Because if Jesus didn't rise, then we are still in our sin. It actually says it in 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve. It says, now if Christ is preached that he has raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. So you just take the whole New Testament and throw it out the door. Because our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Your faith is empty. Do you understand what that means? See, you can believe very sincerely in something. The, the men who flew the planes, the hijacked planes, into the, the Twin Towers, they, with great sincerity, believed that if they did that, if they murdered those people, those children who were at, you know, in the nursery care of the Twin Towers and all that, if they did that, it would give them, because they're doing it in jihad, they're doing it in submission to Allah for His glory, they sincerely believed that by doing that, it assured them as much as they could be assured, because there is no assurance in, in Islam, but as much as they could be, they were assured that they would enter into paradise. Right? That's what they believed. Were they right? The answer is no. They weren't. See, sincerity doesn't really mean anything. Sincerity doesn't, doesn't do anything. It's truth. What is the truth? 
without the empty tomb, if it is just a myth, if it is just a fable, if the disciples snuck past the 200 guards or whatever happened to be there, and if they somehow rolled away the stone and you know, all of the Roman people that were there that were watching over the tomb, if they snuck past them, rolled the two or three ton stone out of the way, snuck in, grabbed Jesus' body and ran away and buried him, if that were true, then guess what? We're wasting our time. We might as well go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and there is no hope beyond that. But that is not the case. That is not the case. This is a provable fact. And not only is it the most important aspect of our Christian faith, but it also it has a great application for us, too, because one of the, the most... Um, profound and necessary practical doctrines of the Bible is self-denial. You guys, are you familiar with that? See, the Old Testament was a covenant of saying, I'm sorry. That, that's really what it was. It, it was a schoolmaster that was designed to push you towards Christ, to show you that, that you that you weren't good enough. And so really what it was, all of the sacrificial system, what it was is I sin. And then I have to go sacrifice a lamb or a, or a bull or a goat or a pigeon or something like that, a dove. But you know, it, it's basically coming before God and saying, I'm sorry. Oops, I'm sorry. I did it again. Lord, oh, I'm sorry. I did it again. Gosh, this is getting really expensive. My sin is very expensive and very bloody. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. And so they kept doing that. Well, in, in Christianity, it's a different kind of covenant. In Christianity, see, the way it's practically lived out is that he, that is Christ, died for me. And so I will die for you. Now, when I talk about dying, that doesn't mean that you're going to be like a little personal Jesus to somebody. You're not going to like go and like sacrifice yourself and be killed for the, on their behalf. But it comes in many ways. Husbands, many times you have to die to yourself for your wife, right? Wives, much more often you have to die to yourself for your husbands, right? Kids, when your parents are being completely stubborn and, and they don't understand, and it's like, gosh, I just want to play the DS. Don't they understand? Sometimes you have to die to yourself and say, okay, mom, okay, dad, I'll go do my chores and do my homework, right? Sometimes, see, we have to be able to lay aside ourselves, but see, in my own strength, in my own ability, it's like, ah, I'm just not feeling it. But when I look upon the cross of Jesus Christ, when I look upon him, even when I know that I'm right and Heidi's wrong and she's completely out of line, then yet I can look at the cross and say, you know what, Lord, you died for me. And so I'm going to die for her and I'm going to lay aside my rights. I'm going to lay aside being right and winning the argument that we might have unity. See, Christianity is, it's a testament. It's a covenant of he died for me and so I will die for you. And see, that is called self-denial. And we see that in the cross. And you even look into uh, the epistles and you see, they, they literally talk, Jesus is the example. He is the one. And we are to look to him because, you know, we always want our own way, right? We always want to do what we want to do. We always, you know, like, hey, you know what? I'm right, I'm right, I'm, of course I'm right. I wouldn't be, you know, this, I wouldn't be like pounding this drum if I wasn't right. And of course they're wrong. And so, you know what? That, that's just the way it is. And yet, nevertheless, we are to look at Christ and say, you know what? He who had no sin became sin for me. He who was pure and holy was slaughtered on my behalf because he was mindful of his father and he had an eye to you and to me that we might be saved. 
That, that is part of what, when we look at the cross, when we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, see, we, we need to understand these things in the same way. See, he is our example. And in the same way that he was willing to lay down his life for me, guys, we need to be willing to lay down our lives for others. But you know, it's not just uh, th- those of you who have denied yourself, those of you uh, who actually had the, just in that super spiritual moment, maybe you had a really good devotion that day, and like you're, you're in the argument with your spouse, or maybe you're, you know, with your parents or something like that, and all of a sudden it's like, you know what, the Holy Spirit came upon you in strength, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, you denied yourself, even though it's like everything in you wanted to yell back, wanted to attack back, but you just, you didn't, you withheld it, and you took, you took it, and you suffered, and, and you died to yourself, and you did all of that. And then when you left, when, when the fight was over and everything was good again, were you just like, man, I can't believe God made me do that. <gasps> Is that what happened? Right? Did, did you regret it? See, every single time that I have ever died to myself, and it doesn't happen very often, unfortunately. It's like, you've got to kill that flesh daily. But it's like those days when I do, when I have victory over the flesh, and I die to myself, and I yield to the Holy Spirit of God, then what happens? I, like, I, I do it, and I go like, whoa, I did it. And all of a sudden, there's this joy that fills my heart, and it's like, it, it, it becomes literally like an offering unto the Lord, and I get excited. And, and there's this joy in the suffering. And, and the more times that I'm able to do it and accomplish this thing, the, the, the more I realize, like, gosh, you know, there is joy in suffering, isn't there? Can any of you identify? Am I talking like something weird to all of you? Or have any of you experienced this? Where it's like when you suffer, when you die to yourself, it's like there's this joy that comes up. Now, I, I want to make sure that we, we get this clear. It's not that there's uh, the joy of suffering, but there is joy in suffering, right? There is joy in suffering because there, there's a lot of people who will abuse themselves as a means to draw close to God, right? It, it actually was something that plagued the church for hundreds of years where like p- people would literally cloister themselves off. They, they would hide themselves away so they couldn't look upon anything. They couldn't talk to anybody. They, they, they couldn't, that's kind of where convents and things like that come from. Like they would, there was this, there was this one guy who literally, he, he built like this big stand. I don't remember how high it was. And he literally built like this little thing and he would sit up there so he could be completely away from everybody. And he would lower a rope and people would put food in it and he would raise it back up and he had completely isolated himself from it in those same times people would take phylacteries they, they, they would take like little whips and things like that and they punish themselves and they beat themselves to, to try to win approval with god and you know is there joy in that is that acceptable to god is punishing yourself somehow holy is it somehow get you closer to god and the answer is no because there's not joy of suffering but there is joy in suffering because no matter how much self-inflicted pain you put yourself through on Sunday morning, it, it doesn't matter how much pain you put yourself through on Sunday morning, that will not wipe out volitional sin Monday through Saturday, right? Pain is not holy. It is not holy. But when we look to Jesus, right? Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Can you imagine? Now think about this. Those of you who've seen the Passion of the Christ, what we have just talked about this Easter morning, do you understand that though Jesus was suffering more than anyone has ever suffered, being separated from his Father, everything, 
Do you know that there was a joy that was in his heart while he was doing it, while he was burying his cross, while he was being crucified, while he was being scourged and his skin was being peeled open by the cat of nine tails? There was joy. There was a joy that could not be taken from him. Christ was obedient to his father. And when he looked from Calvary, he looked out into eternity forward and he saw you and he saw me. And there was joy. That's what the scriptures declare. There was joy. Who for the joy set before him, being obedient to his father and redeeming each one of us in this room. He endured the cross, despising its shame. He hated it. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was crying. That's why he was weeping the great drops of blood. Father, if it is possible that this cup pass from me, Lord, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Father, if there's any other way, let it happen. And yet, because he loved you and he loved me, and even in John chapter 17, he prayed. Do you know in the Bible there's a prayer for you? Literally. That's pretty cool, huh? Check it out. John chapter 17, Jesus prays for us when he was on the cross he was thinking about us and i bet because he is the son of god he is god i bet from the cross he could see every one of our faces i bet when he was there on that cross the nails were in his hands or his wrists however you like it and they were driven through his feet and as he was there bleeding and suffering i bet he could see all of our faces and that's what compelled him to stay on the cross christ's suffering there was joy within it and stranger still, the father in, I, in Isaiah 53:10a, it says that it pleased the father to bruise him. The whole Isaiah 53, that, that chapter that's not even read in synagogues because it points so clearly to Jesus. All, it, it's just talking about the suffering of Christ, suffering of the Messiah. And yet it says in Isaiah 53:10a, it says that it pleased God to crush him. It was God's will. See, Jesus from the cross looked out and he saw you. God the Father from the throne looked down into this physical finite world. And guess what he saw? He saw you. He saw you. And it pleased him that Jesus made himself an offering for our sin. See guys, our suffering, because we do suffer. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you're never going to suffer. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go well. Right? Those of you who know our story, yeah, you know what? Trinity passed. She did. And that wasn't easy. You suffer. Right? You, you see David and Christine. You see the Kalins. You see there are things that happen. Right? You talk to different families and you see the struggles and you see the pain. And yet, guys, you know what? There's something that we need to keep in mind is that this pain is temporary. It is temporary. And it is forging us for heaven it is preparing us in the same way that as christ was on the cross as god the father was on the throne and they he, they were looking upon us because that was the reason why they did it right did god have to go to the cross did god have to save us the answer is absolutely not only if he wanted to save us did he have to go to the cross only if he wanted to save you and me was it necessary for christ to be crucified god had no you know he, he told adam and eve hey wages of sin is death don't eat of that tree. They ate of the tree. Well, guess what? You're dead. That could have been it. New creation. Let's, we'll start over with the angels, right? And off he went. That could have been. But you know what? God looked upon humankind, humanity, with great compassion. And so he understands what it means to suffer because he came and suffered. That's how he can be a faithful and merciful high priest unto us. 
And so when we suffer, when we enter into the times of great trial in our own lives, see, that's why Peter says that we need to look to Christ, right? We need to look to him because he knows what it means to suffer. He knows sorrow. He knows pain. He is acquainted with grief. And not only that, but guys, in 1 Peter uh, 2.21, Peter actually says that we're called to it. He was speaking of, you know, we, we actually studied this on Wednesday nights two weeks ago, but he literally says to the slaves who were purchased there, who were under the rule of twisted and cruel masters, he says, hey, you know what? Submit to them in conscience towards God, eye on Jesus as your example, that your master might be saved. Because to this, you were called. You were elected. You were chosen for this. I was elected to bear the burden of a daughter passing before me. That was my burden. That was what I was chosen for. That is Heidi's burden. That is Sarah and Olivia and Chloe's burden. That is your burden as a church who have walked alongside us through it. Right? That is our burden. But we were called to it. But you know what, guys? Any one of you, every single one of you can bear witness for me. I don't even need to say it. Do you see joy in our life? Did the joy, was it ever extinguished? Was it ever just quenched out? And then somebody had to come alongside us and say, no, 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 and reignite the joy. Did that ever happen? No. And it's not because that we're super strong and we have it together because there are times where we're freaking out. There's still times when we freak out. But you know, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. And that changes everything. That changes everything. He is risen. He is risen. We have a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The empty tomb means that our faith is not empty. We have a substantial faith because of the empty tomb. Amen? Not only that, but look at Jesus. Him being our example, it says, for the joy set before him. Right? There's a reward. Did you guys know that? There's a reward. There's a reward waiting for us because if Christ indeed rose from the dead, and he did, it's the most provable fact in ancient history, even more provable than our own history as a nation. Did you know that? How old's our nation? A couple hundred years old? Do you know there's more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than that there's this thing called the United States? And we kind of live in it, so it's kind of provable, isn't it? Okay, there is more evidence for that. We have a living hope. So guys, there is a reward waiting for you. Heaven is for real. The reward is true. And so I say, guys, you know what? Be patient. It is true. It is real. Keep your eyes on the prize. First Peter 1, 3. I'm just going to read uh, these verses because it's fantastic. We went through it in, 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 on Wednesday nights, but you know what? It's worth reading again because it's fantastic. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. Guys, there is reward and it's waiting, and it's eternal, and it's undefiled, and it is being kept by God himself for you. It cannot be taken away. And you know what? Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. See, you know, Paul, he said that, you know, the secret to his ministry is that he never considers himself to have apprehended, right? He's never there, but his eyes are always forward on the prize and the upward call of Jesus Christ. He's always moving forward. He's always looking to that end. He's always looking to the day when he will see his Jesus face to face. 
the one whom he persecuted, the one who looking upon him in his glory blinded him, that Ananias had to come and lay hands on him and say, Brother Saul, be healed. You are a chosen vessel of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He said, look forward, be mindful, don't lose heart. When just the pain of this world, when the crucifixion of this world comes upon you and and you're just, you're you're buckling under the, the pressure, whether it be financial, whether it be emotional, whether it be spiritual, when you're buckling under it, he says, don't lose heart. Keep your eye on the prize for Christ. He was on the cross and he was looking for the joy that was set before him. He endured he endured, though he despised it. You don't have to enjoy it. There's no joy of suffering. It's joy in suffering. The suffering cannot quench the joy of the Lord when it is found inside your heart. It cannot quench it. Not only that, but Paul said, you know what? Run to win. He says, hey, you're speaking of, they're kind of like the Olympics, the Isthmian Games. They're the, they were the predecessor to the Olympics. And he said, hey, you know what? Everybody in a race runs to win. He says, they they all run. They're all competing for the prize. He says, but you run to win. Run your race. Keep your eyes on the prize. Run to win. Don't run for a tie. Don't run to come in fifth place. Because in the game of salvation, there is nothing but first place. First place means salvation and eternity and hope forever. Joy and peace, grace and love. Hope that is living. Anything else, anything else, you've already lost. You've already lost. Not only that, but guys, the prize that is set before us far outweighs the cost. It far outweighs the pain that, I mean, guys, seriously, if every single day of your life, and some some people have this testimony, if every single day of your life was filled with pain and sorrow and suffering, and yet you gave your heart to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, then when you stand before the throne, guess what? Will it all be worth it? When, when you look into the eyes of Jesus and you see him and you know him even as you are known, and he looks into your eyes and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Father. Will it all be worth it? Yeah, it absolutely will be worth it. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, if you want to turn there, go for that. I'm going to read a little bit from this. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, I, I, I want to take this moment on this Easter because Jesus suffered and he died for us. He is our living hope. But see, remember for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So I just want us to be mindful of what that joy was. I want to see it in scripture. I want to read it. I want to wash my mind with this truth because it says in Revelation chapter five, verse eight, looking, this is uh, in the heavenly scene. It says now, When he had taken the scroll, that's Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said Amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever the joy that was set before jesus christ is this scene in heaven where we will stand before his throne but only for a minute because we're going to be falling down on our faces and we are going to be worshiping him see we are the prize we are the treasure we were his joy we were it was our faces it is this moment that will be realized hopefully very soon it is this moment that christ looked to from the cross and said it's worth it It is from this place. It is with this in mind that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, that that, that was the work of the cross. It was forgiveness. It was death to self on behalf of another. And Jesus looked to this day. But guys, guess what? See, this was Jesus' reward. Now, we suffer as well, right? We suffer. Christianity has that mandate that we are called to suffer on behalf of others so others might be saved, so others might have the same joy and comfort that we have. So what's our reward? You want me to read it again? It's the same thing. Guys, what is our reward? Our reward is that we get to stand before Jesus Christ. We get to fall before him. We get to worship him. We get to do what even the angels aren't allowed to do. And we get to know him even as he is known. We get to look into the eyes of our Savior. We get to see his face in all his glory. We get to understand him, the infinite God who inhabits the heavens who's the earth in this universe is his footstool, right? That is our reward. He is our reward. What is heaven without God, right? You take God out of heaven, what do you got? Cold, hard gold. Okay, so what? That seems pretty worthless. But now you take God and you put him in a tax return appointment and you're praising God, And it's fabulous, and it's glorious, and it's wonderful. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But see, we happen to get the best of both worlds. We get heaven and God. See, that's our reward. And when we are suffering, when we are just, we're terrified, and we're looking to the cross, our cross, that Jesus says you need to take up daily if you wish to be my disciple. When we look to that, and when we are buckling under the pain, see, what we are called to do, we are called to look to this moment. We are called to look and say, wow, one day I will be before my God. I will see him. He is my reward. He is my inheritance. And it was all purchased by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death for us. See, Jesus didn't die on his cross. He died on your cross. He died on my cross. So what do we do with all this? Well, we do have a living hope. We have a living hope. Jesus said in John eleven twenty three, he, he, he said to Martha, he says, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? If you believe this, if you believe this, then guys, guess what? The reward is sure, and not only that, but one of the greatest gifts, practically, that this truth brings 
so that you never have to be afraid again. How many of you are afraid on a regular basis? Happens all the time, right? Oh, uh, what will they think? What will they say? Oh, what if this happens? What about, you know, if I lose my job? If I say this and I'm a witness for Jesus, then this is going to happen. What if people, they don't like me, they hate me because of it? You know, there's all these different things. They're, 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 you know, we're plagued with fear. But if, if Jesus rose from the dead, if the empty tomb is a fact, and it is, I've been there, I've touched the stone, right? If it is true, and it is true, then we never have to be afraid again. We never have to be afraid to trust God. Anybody ever struggle with trusting God? Come on, everybody raise your hand. You ever struggle trusting God when he's trying to show you something and he's telling it to you and, and he's got both ears, right? And he, he's like in your face and he's talking to you, right? You ever struggle trusting him even then when you know he's speaking to you and, and even still you're like, but what will that be? It'll, it'll be suffering. It'll be pain. Oh, they, you know, they won't understand. Oh, ah, e, ah. You know what? If you believe this, then the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians chapter one, dwells in you. The dunamis power of the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you don't have to be afraid. You can trust God. You can walk in righteousness. You can do what you are called to do without fear, without question, without compromise. That is purchased for you at the cross. That is guaranteed to you at the resurrection. Not only that, but you don't have to be afraid to deny yourself. You don't have to be afraid to die to yourself. Right? You think, oh, but, but pastor, if I do that, then they're going to take advantage of me. If I do that, you don't understand. They're not going to understand and they're not going to do what they're supposed to do. It's okay. You're not working for a prize that, like in the Isthmian Games. You're not looking for a prize like a gold medal that, that Olympians get. You're working for a prize that is found in heaven, that is undefiled and eternal in nature that God is reserving for you and in that day will hand to you personally. So you don't have to be afraid to deny yourself. You can do it joyfully. And when the suffering comes and when people take advantage of you and when people despitefully use you and persecute you, you can say, Lord, all to your glory. You don't have to be afraid. And not only that, but you don't have to be afraid to follow Jesus. You don't have to be afraid to follow him all the way to Calvary, even if it means your own death. Some of us, maybe in this room, maybe Jeremy, will be called to pour out our blood for our own Savior. There have been many missionaries who have died in the name of Jesus Christ. Scriptures say that they didn't deny that. They welcomed it, that they might have a greater resurrection. You know what? Jeremy may be outshining all of us. If he goes and it's like, you know, he's preaching the gospel, he's standing up for righteousness sake and he gets killed. They mob him and they beat him and they stone him. Whatever they do, they kill him. You know what? He will have a reward. So even us laying down our lives, even us suffering death and shedding really, not metaphorically, but really shedding our own blood, even that is a blessing and a joy and we can do it without fear because Christ rose again do you believe this are you willing to trust him don't be afraid don't be afraid what he might take don't be afraid what the devil might do in retaliation trust him follow him all the way to calvary and i promise you you will never regret it let us pray father we thank you so much for this day lord we glory in the fact that you came. 
the Afikoman. Lord, you came. You poured out your life for us. You were willing to give up everything that we might have life. You loved us so much, Lord, and it is our desire to love you with a pure and perfect love. Teach us how to love, Lord. Stir up our faith, Lord. Strengthen our obedience and our resolve that we might follow you. Perfect love casts out all fear, Lord, and so, Lord, teach us to love. We glorify you now in Jesus' name.